James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, and also said, you shall not murder, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. O Lord, grant us grace to love our neighbors with the same love you have for us. Help us to turn away from favoritism and prejudice, lest we sin and fall short of your holy law. Amen. Good morning, Faith Westwood. What a joy it has been to be here and to get to know one another. Thank you for your continued hospitality and encouragement in these early weeks together. We are exploring this and that. This is our sermon series from the letter of James to the early church. Prayerfully, you are also learning a little bit of this and that about me and my family. The first week we talked about trials and temptations. Last week we focused on listening and doing, remembering that we can't just listen to the word of God, we must do what it says. And hopefully this past week you didn't have to use your think-speak filter too often. <laughs> now this week we want to focus on speaking and acting, considering how wisdom invites us not to choose favorites, yet to live out the greatest commandment. You are invited to follow along as we dig into God's word today. The page number for our pew Bibles is listed on the screen. And you are always welcome to bring your own personal Bible to worship with you, or you can also use a Bible app on your mobile devices. But would you please join me in prayer? Almighty God, open our ears that we may hear your word. Open our eyes that we may see your glory in our midst. And open our hearts that we might know your spirit's presence with us in these moments. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. As Christians, we are called to be wise, which means that we are invited to learn and to grow. I was an English major at Doan University, and I love words. I love learning new words. I love using a thesaurus, and I love quotes and phrases. And one of my favorite figures of speech is a paraprodoskian. Let's say that together. Paraprodoskian. New word for some of you. How many of you know what a paraprodoskian is? It's a combination of Greek words meaning against expectation. 
In a paraprodoskian, the latter part of the sentence or phrase is surprising or unexpected, and it's frequently used in a humorous situation. For example, where there's a will, I want to be in it, is a form of a paraprodoskian. Okay, so here are some others. Evening news is where they begin with good evening, and they proceed to tell you why it isn't. People say nothing is impossible, yet I do nothing every day. Whenever you fill out an application, in the part that says, in case of emergency, please contact, just put doctor. <laughs> to steal ideas from one person is plagiarism. To steal from many is called research. <laughs> I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. Okay. Now you're getting the gist. Nostalgia isn't what it used to be. And just right for the summer season, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomato in a fruit salad. Amen? Okay, now none of these statements are life-changing or life-transforming, yet some of them may be fun to share in a social setting. Now certainly we get all of the trivial wisdom that we may want to enjoy. Yet the wisdom that we really need is spiritual, life-changing, and it's important. We have already experienced that the letter of James is filled with some amazing catchphrases and spiritual nuggets that continue to guide us. So let's explore our focus passage. At the beginning of chapter 2, James emphasizes that favoritism is forbidden. Believers in Christ must guard themselves against this. Those early Christians who needed to hear these words were giving attention to those who were rich and they were discriminating against the poor. According to James, those new believers were treating those with gold rings and, and fine clothes special attention over those who were wearing filthy old clothes. Now Jesus had taught the disciples and the crowds about the dangers of judging one another. The apostles had to continue these conversations with these new Christians. I love what James says in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who, who loved him? This is a rhetorical question. Of course God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. That statement of James is also very pointed, though, isn't it? James wanted to remind these believers that they have dishonored the poor with their actions. The rich have been exploiting the poor and dragging them into court. Essentially, they were taking the Lord's name in vain. This was the family to which they now belonged. How could they do such things? Now, on one hand, let's admit the early church needed the financial resources to be able to survive and to care for one another. And so the wealthy had an important place and an opportunity to make that kingdom difference for the church. In fact, in Acts of the Apostles, we are reminded at the end of chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Early in the church, the writer of Acts actually boasted as the believers shared everything they had. 
In Acts 4, it's recorded, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Wow, how quickly things changed. Now, on the other hand, every New Testament letter addresses at some level and encourages and reminds and reminds the Christian church that they must take care of those who were most vulnerable among them because they were struggling to do so. Paul reported to the Romans for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Paul shared in his first letter to the Corinthians, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul wrote to the Galatians, All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do all along. And Paul shared in his first letter to Timothy, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help widows who are really in need. Now last week we heard about the religion that God accepts is one that cares for the poor and the, the widows and the orphans. One's faith must be lived out by caring for those who are in need and not discriminating against those that we ought to be helping. The early church was remembering the teachings, the words of Jesus. He had emphasized that the poor was always going to be with them, yet he also reminded them to care for the least of these. His expectation was that the church was founded in his name and would remember his teachings to the end of the age. Now let's face it, Favoritism is an unfortunate part of our lives. Now, for a moment, I want us to go back and remember the laws of the playground. Remember those days? How many of you remember Red Rover? Red Rover, right? Two lines facing each other, people holding hands, and they would call Red Rover, Red Rover, send Cindy right over. And their goal was to keep people from breaking the line, right? Well, I got called on a lot because I struggled to get through the line on the other side. I was an easy mark. And I have to admit that, unfortunately, I got to go back and forth a lot because perhaps I was the weakest link to hold the line together. Ouch, right? I'll admit that I wasn't the strongest girl on the playground. But then there was kickball. Remember kickball? I dreaded that. I dreaded that. Because here they would gather all the kids together. They'd pick two captains, and the captains would start picking, right? Picking their teams. And they would always pick the people who were strongest first, the ones who had the most power. It always seemed that, that I was at the end of the line being picked. My best option then when I was playing kickball was to do a bunt kick and try my hardest to outrun that red ball from getting hit in the back. I can laugh about it now, but I have to tell you that younger Cindy could have her feelings hurt very easily, and dang it, those games hurt my ego and my body. Again, nostalgia isn't what it used to be. 
But let's think about this for a moment. Favoritism isn't just limited to the playground. Even today, favoritism comes out in the ways that we live out social settings. How we act in those social settings. We might easily judge someone based on what they're wearing. We may treat them differently because of it. And James says that this is so very wrong. This reminds us to check ourselves before we go into these settings. But we are drawn toward people who look like us, who talk like us, who are dressed like us and who may even wear, who may even drive cars like us. We might be drawn toward people who are very easy to visit with rather than those who are standing or sitting quietly in the corner. And unfortunately, favoritism still exists in the church. We'd like to say that it doesn't, but we know that it does. When we see someone that we don't know in worship, do we scoot over to make room or do we just sit and watch where they're going to sit? Right? Do we tend to, to speak to those folks that we know best or do we reach out for the opportunity to make a new friend? Or the middle ground is that we're afraid that we're going to say something wrong to somebody that we haven't yet met, right? This is hard. This is complicated for any church. And yet some churches even have a strong suggestion that before you may speak to anyone you know, you should seek out someone that you don't know first. Okay, introverts, I... I feel your pain. <laughs> that may be a challenge for you, and it may be a challenge for all of us. But I want you to remember the first time that you were a guest to a congregation that you didn't know very many people in there. Whether it was one person or whether it was many people, my guess is that you returned to the church because there were extra moments that were taken by that one person or, or many people to help you feel welcome and to help you to connect. Now about favoritism, biblical scholar N.T. Wright says in his commentary on James, the world is always assessing people, sizing them up, putting them down, establishing a pecking order. Isn't that true? We also heard about the world last week, reminding us that the world can too easily pollute us. When we judge and or when we discriminate, we are living out the world's values. God's kingdom values reflect the fact that God sees all people, loves all people, and invites us to love one another. How can we reflect his generous love? We must remember what James calls the royal law which is found in scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments, reminding believers to love your neighbor as yourself. James wrote in his letter that these Christian believers are doing right if they keep the royal law. But if they show favoritism, they sin, and they prove themselves to be lawbreakers. Again here we see James's blunt nature. He says, if you keep the whole law, then stumble at just one point. You are guilty of breaking all of it. Ouch. The early church was very aware of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And of course, the point was to keep them all. 
staying in relationship with God. That's the first four commandments. And then staying in relationship with one another, that's the last six commandments. James is emphasizing that not one was more important than the other. Yet he knew that the people in the early Christian church might tend to pick and choose the laws that were seemingly important and ignore the rest. They may have thought, a little coveting of my neighbor's possessions won't hurt anyone. Yet, it was that little act of coveting that could certainly have detrimental circumstances and lead to one sinning repeatedly. So James says that the believers must be speaking and acting as those who are going to be judged in accordance with the law that gives freedom. He is speaking of the law of Christ. Again, this law is freedom because it frees us to truly love God and one another as God intended. In Christ, we are free from the chains that bind us, the chains of sin and darkness and even death. In Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. In Christ, our sins have been forgiven. In Christ, there is light that is shining in the darkness. In Christ, death has been conquered. And we have been given the gift of eternal life. In addition, believers must be speaking and acting in accordance with the law of Christ because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. James concludes our focus passage with the words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, for many of us, God's compassion and mercy met us in some dark places and times in our lives. We were lost, and then we were found. We were sinners and then forgiven. God's mercy met us exactly where we were, and his love didn't leave us there. Amen? I came to Christ when I was 16 years old. I have to say, as a teenager, I was in a pretty dark place at that time. I wasn't in a lot of trouble, but my dad was one of my teachers, and I was a teenager. And I remember that I was sitting in, one church, in church one day. We sat toward the back, and I remember that I just put my head down. I was feeling so heavy. I was feeling so empty. I was feeling darkness all around me. And there was something that, that inside of me that had me look up. And when I looked up, there was this picture of Christ that hung above the altar. And when I looked up and I saw Jesus, and I saw Jesus' eyes, it was like that picture was illuminated before me. And instead of feeling cold and empty, I, I started to feel Christ and his light and his love come inside of me. I was a teenager. It didn't last very long. <laughs> I went home that afternoon and I started sulking again. I got grumpy again. I was working on my homework and I remember thinking to myself, I just want to feel like I felt this morning. That's all I want is to feel like I felt this morning. And so I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I asked Jesus to warm me up, to let his light shine in me and through me. 
Just a few weeks later, I had the opportunity to publicly profess my faith at a youth gathering. Powerful moments. Jesus changed my life and, and continues to do so. When our lives are changed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ, then we remember that the church is meant to be a place that, that lives out the greatest commandment and demonstrates God's compassion and mercy in tangible and relevant ways. In fact, the church is really good with acts of compassion and mercy. This is a very good thing. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We visit those who are sick and in prison. We support and encourage programs that address mental health issues. We care about the whole person, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and even financial. Thanks be to God. But the next step for Christians is to address the justice issues and systems that cause the need for those acts of compassion and mercy. What are the root issues of poverty? How can we address those issues? Who are we really helping? And who are we completely missing in our endeavors? And how can we ensure the dignity of those that we are serving? I know that I haven't been here very long. Yet the letter of James was intended to communicate important truths with those early Christians living in and around Jerusalem. Those words still speak to us today, even though they may hurt a bit. So friends, let me speak truth, and let me speak that truth in love. Well-meaning Christians can easily get into a fix-it mode with those that they are supposed to be helping. People who need the basics in life to survive need to see the face of Jesus, not a judgmental savior type in front of them. Again, that's where we must be speaking and acting in a mercy mindset, not in a judgy one. And yes, judgy is a word. But in this series, we've been reminding ourselves that one of the primary goals of James is spiritual maturity. Christians who are speaking and acting from a perspective of judgment, not mercy, aren't what we would consider spiritually mature. And Christians who aren't learning and growing are not living out their faith in ways that will be sustainable for themselves or for the church. As individuals, then, we must remember our discipleship vows to live out our faith in the church through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. Prayer is your lifeline to God. So pray without ceasing for family, for friends, church family. Your presence in worship on site and, and or online means that you are dedicating at least 60 minutes plus to your spiritual growth each week. Your presence in study and service also makes a difference. Sharing your gifts and service makes a difference in building up the kingdom of God. It isn't just about the monetary gifts, but also includes sharing your musical talents, greeting, ushering, reading scripture, tending to flower beds, 
counting money, helping with the food pantry, serving on a committee or team, and so much more. And your witness includes sharing the good news that you have experienced with someone else. You're going to hear me say this a lot. But each of us has been given a very unique story to tell about how God's love and grace and mercy and peace has come into our lives through Jesus Christ. There is someone out there that needs to hear your unique story. So be prepared to share the short version, that's important, but also be prepared to share the long version. Be that blessed friend and, and bring someone to that saving knowledge of Christ. As a church family, how do we measure this, right? How do we measure if we're growing spiritually mature? Well, the Great Plains Annual Conference uses measurements through attendance, professions of faith, small groups, and giving. We call these things vital signs. They help us as a church to know how we're doing. Several years ago, our then Bishop Reuben Sines Jr. reminded us how important these statistics are to the vitality of our churches, of our districts, and also our conference. And then he said something that stuck with me. He said, clergy, I want you to remember that these numbers equal people. Right? These numbers equal people. The lives that are changed through Jesus and the church. So I want to describe each of these as I think that it may remind us how important these measures are to our vitality. Attendance. I know it sounds obvious, but it represents each person who participates in worship on site and or online. We have to remember that people have a lot of choices every Sunday morning, right? So be grateful for those who choose to attend worship, to connect with God and Christ and the Spirit through the church family of their choice. And also think about what worship does for your body, mind, and spirit. And it's not just the, the sermon, the message, is it? It's also about how the music touches our hearts. It's about how scripture speaks to us in a way that might be important to us. It's the whole worship experience that changes us from the inside out. Professions of faith represent those who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ in their lives, whether it's through confirmation or later in life. Our baptismal covenant is important, and every time someone makes that profession of faith, it can remind us that we chose to become a part of the family of God. With that being said, from time to time, we're going to give an opportunity for you to say yes, to say yes again, to renew your covenant with Christ in the church. But for today, I want you to think about the first time that you said yes to Jesus. I want you to remember that feeling and remember what that can do for others. Small groups, or what Faith Westwood calls faith groups, are those opportunities for church family members and friends to learn and to grow together through Bible studies, book studies, fellowship, and accountability. These faith groups are, are something that Faith Westwood does really, really well. So stay tuned as you hear 
about the new opportunities, those new faith groups that are going to be started this fall, maybe even an online group for those who are worshiping with us online. Think about the ways that a small group or faith group has helped you to grow in your faith. Now, giving is a challenging measurement, isn't it? Our vital signs keep track only of financial giving, yet our church needs giving of money to the general budget, toward mission projects. We need and appreciate all of our staff members who provide structure and leadership for programs and ministries. And while we desperately need to keep the lights on in our building and keep the air conditioning going... We also need those pieces of technology and resources to provide quality worship services. Our former bishop used to say, give until it hurts. Some of us didn't like that so much, so we said, give until it feels good. (laughs) These vital signs may help churches to measure their vitality, and they certainly move us in that direction of spiritual maturity that James desired. This maturity comes through the practice of our faith and living out our faith as true disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, for James, this was about remembering the greatest commandment to love God and to love neighbor. This is key for all Christians today. You know, one of my favorite parapredoskians is this. Are you ready for this? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. (laughs) Friends, if that is true, then we ought to do something about making sure that we become the best disciples that we are able. To glean as much wisdom as humanly possible. To grow in spiritual maturity. And to be seriously paying attention to this and that, including our speaking and acting. Amen. Okay, friends, get comfortable where you're at. Wiggle a little bit. And I want you to open your minds, your hearts, and maybe even your hands as we come together in prayer. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for the wisdom of James. But God, we admit that sometimes these words are hitting us where it hurts. Don't play favorites. God, we learned this at the playground. We learned this when we were young. So God, help us to remember to keep ourselves in check with all of our interactions that we may seek to be the people that you've called us to be and to be wise in our interactions. To remember first and foremost to keep all of the commandments and especially the greatest one, to love you and to love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Every single person. God, today we know that there are people who are hurting, they're feeling lost, They're in hospital rooms, praying over their loved ones. They're at home, longing for connection. They may be sitting right here in this room, 
wondering what's next in their lives. So God, surround us. Surround us with your love and grace, your mercy and your peace. Remind us that we are accepted and we are loved and we are forgiven. And we are a part of your family. In the name of Jesus Christ, call us out of our comfort zones and help us to extend your love and grace with others. God, all of this we pray in the name of the one who taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.